Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. And uh, for all of you who have been following us and sharing what we have done, thank you so much. Thank you very much for whatever you do and locally and globally and for your family and for your friends to protect your family. We appreciate you and we're glad we're all in the right narrative. So today we are very um, excited because now we're getting really um, we're going, we can go deep dive into what's really been making this uh, pandemic, this craziness, get crazier and crazier. So for today, with Mary um, for Mindful Empowerment, in uh, all the way from Florida, and Steve and from Awakened Mind, and Hartmut from Germany, and with his Go Your Own Path, and yours truly, Grace, your quantum nurse. I'm from New Jersey, originally from the Philippines. So we all thank you so much. With, and we have two brilliant physicians and two brilliant individuals, very courageous. And I really like that what they're doing. Um, because, you know, when you have to understand what they're saying, we all know that we've been duped for a long time. And now it's time to wake up. Okay, so let me start with Dr. Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman, as most of you know, he made such a headline last year and lots of thousands of views because he's a New York psychiatrist and he just boldly exposed the COVID-19 hoax. And so with that, he's been known to really speak about exosomes and extracellular vesicles. Then, you know, we, we know that he speaks the truth and he is taking a risk for all his um, medical profession and here he is helping us and dr um, tom cohen is has all is another brave soul who he didn't care maybe he cared but he said if he if he let go of that medical license so that he could help people more and not continue to be disheartened or disenchanted with the medical care system or the Western medical care system, the way it is, it has been and is going right now. He's an author of many books, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, Cancer, and the New Biology of Water, which is also one of our favorite topics in this group is about water, and a co-author of Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illnesses. So thank you. So. And they're very busy, but here they are, and I'm sure they can be very tired, just as we can get tired of talking the same thing over and over again. But we feel that there's a need to have that spoken or have that shared. So with them, it opened up the doors and why I like it, what you're doing, Dr. Kaufman, because you're opening up. For me, it's a lot of accountability. If we understand about what you're saying, then we individuals could be really accountable for our day-to-day -day life. And also it brings that alternative thoughts, alternative conversation, and also it brings that to multi-dimensional conversation, which we all don't know so much about, but here we are. So Dr. Kaufman and Dr. Tom Cohen, feel free, any of you could just, you know, respond to any of our comments and conversation just as we will do because i know we have limited time so with with this with this topic that you've always been sharing of show me the virus what all those years hundreds of years what did the virologists have been looking into when they look at the microscope or any kind of testing what are they seeing 
Well, they're uh, if you mean the particles that they say are viruses, what are they? What are they actually? They're they're simply breakdown products of dying um, cells, and uh, I think that's been pretty well explained. There's no way for them to show that they're anything but that. Um, but you know, there are also images where you can see isolated um, types of particles like uh, from bacteriophages, for example, or giant viruses in um, sea algae, um, or even uh, some exosomes have been actually purified and into uh, just one type of uh, particle uh, rather than a mixture. But what's always shown as uh, evidence of a virus is simply a mixture of particles that are breakdown products in a dying cell culture. But what happened that it was just been accepted all throughout those years that it's okay. Let's just yeah define it, and it made a lot of people, uh, especially those who are interested. You know, that's a big thing that they made out their career from being a virologist and believing everything. And now um, we also most people. Um, I hope not most, but I know last year most people believed it and they're really scared about the virus. Well, yes, the whole, the whole, everything is really created to manufacture fear. So, of course, people are scared. But, you know, really, we could apply this to, to many fields. Um, you know, it's, it's openly stated that more than half of all published scientific research is false. So that means half of all scientists are doing work that's that's false, right? I mean, that, this is accepted. This is one of the most widely cited articles in the literature. So it should hardly be surprising that perhaps uh, a whole field's foundation is actually based on a false premise or a scientific misconception. If we look at the, you know, you uh, mentioned about Tom and, and actually I also left allopathic medicine and, uh, you know, didn't renew my license because there, there's really, I, I didn't find anything of value there to provide for patients. So I didn't want to keep practicing there. And if you really look at the overall science, there's almost nothing beneficial in medicine. And in fact, it's probably the leading cause of death is medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Yet almost everybody participates and, and submits and seeks out this care, right? So what we have really is uh, just a, a fundamental um, uh, misperception of reality among uh, most people, I think, because nobody actually steps back and examines the validity of these systems uh, because they've just been in existence and we've been, you know, told in a factual manner that these things are the way the world works since we're little kids. And it wasn't until, you know, the same thing for Tom and I, you know, now we may have questioned things early in our life, but we didn't, we, we started out with the mainstream position also, even if we, it didn't feel right for us. Right. It's like, because that's what um, everyone is kind of programmed from the beginning to believe. And then, you know, for some reason, uh, some people are able to actually look at these things objectively. And, you know, all of the things that we have just kind of accept and we think are true 
if we step back and question those and say, oh, well, what, what's actually the rational basis in reality for these things? What's the actual evidence? We see that they're actually, for many of these things, they're totally backwards compared to what, what the reality is. And it's just that very few people are willing to look at this because of all the risks involved and all the programming that goes against it. And you know, if, there's um, if, I, if I can um, just chime in a little bit here, um, one of the things that I, when I say what I say or people talk, respond to me, they, they, they usually don't want to think about it, but so they usually say very interesting thing, which is uh, how could all these scientists and doctors be wrong, right? That, that's an, a code for saying, it's, I don't want to think about it, because I'm just going to choose who I believe. Like, I either believe that guy or I believe you. And I don't know e what either one of you are saying. Uh, so I'll just choose who to believe. So I happened to wake up this morning and made a very brief list of things that scientists or doctors either believed were true, all of them, that turn out to be not true, or things that they still believe are true, but actually are easily proven to be not true. So this is a very partial list. Number one, uh, for years, doc all doctors thought smoking was good for you. And now no, none of them do. So if you think if, it's, if the consensus of doctors is the truth, in 1940, you would have thought Marlboro was the best thing for your health. Number two, x-rays were completely safe. In fact, they used to put children on x-ray, stand on x-ray machines to measure their feet to get to, so they could buy shoes. All doctors thought x-rays were safe. Bone marrow transplants, done for decades for cancer patients. They would basically poison their bone marrow and put a new bone marrow in, never worked once and they kept doing it and killing people. Uh, number I four. used to do that, Tom, when I was a physician assistant. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, and I never saw anyone get better from a bone marrow transplant either. Yeah, never works. Another one, all obstetricians thought thalidomide was a great thing for first trimester pregnancy nausea. Turns out caused birth defects. Number five, all scientists think all the water on Earth is part of the hydrological cycle, you know, rain then goes in, and that no new water is created. And all you have to do is measure the tritium levels in the water, which is an isotope of hydrogen, and you can figure out that probably at least half, maybe more of the water on Earth is actually created primarily deep under the, uh, the bedrock, and comes up to the earth newly created, having never been in the atmosphere at all. Easily proven, that's number five. Number six, biological transmutations. We say calcium is calcium and potassium is potassium, but yet you can take an egg and measure the calcium, and then because an egg is a perfect model, there's no input or output, you can let the chick hatch and before it even breathes or drinks anything, you can measure the calcium and it's different. So what happened to it? 
according to science, that can't possibly happen. But of course, as I often say, the trouble with science is it's not very scientific. And so it does happen, whether they have an explanation or not. I mean, I have an explanation, but, uh, but it's a fact that since it doesn't fit with scientific dogma, it's considered to be not true. And the final one is pleomorphism, which means organisms change form depending on their conditions. A number of very prominent researchers have seen this, Beauchamp, Reif, Gaston, Naissance, but in around 1896, they decided that that's not true and you can't publish a paper that mentions pleomorphism, i.e. one organism changing form into another one, even though we've all seen caterpillars change into butterflies, which is simply an example of pleomorphism, but we're told somehow that's not true. So I could go on. Uh, in fact, the question for me is not so much how could conventional science or doctors be wrong, but <laughs> name a time they're right. I, I can't actually think of what, you know, people say, well, they must be right about something. Right. I mean, they say today is Monday, which I guess I agree with. Uh, but otherwise, it's hard to come up with anything that is actually true. You know, uh, there's a, another way to, to add on to this, what Tom's saying, because, um, you know, and it's by contrasting engineers and scientists, because, you know, engineers, right, are using technology to create some kind of device that does something, right? Or maybe it's a software program that does something, but it has to work, right? At the end of the day, if whatever they're doing doesn't work, then it doesn't work and you know it's bogus, right? But for a scientist, when they do their work, uh, their experiments, you know, trying to uh, explain natural phenomenon, it's much less clear cut. How do they actually prove, you know, that these things are actually true? How do we know they didn't just fudge their data or misinterpret their data? We don't really have very good standards. We, you know, we say peer review is like really the standard, but that's not really how you show that science is valid. You show it by repeating the experiment and getting the same results, right? You're showing it by by doing experiments that would disprove it or try to go against it and then seeing if they fail or not, right? And that it's like really that process. And we don't have that process at all. Instead, we have, you know, we rely on this peer review system. But the thing is, because there is so such a large publishing industry, um, there aren't enough peers to go around. And how do we know that the peers are actually, you know, getting anything right or missing anything? Like I know when I had my own experience of submitting papers and also of being a peer reviewer for a journal um, that, you know, I saw that the peer reviewers that I had to deal with didn't even understand the methods that I was using which, by the way, were not complex. <laughs> they were simple statistical um, um, techniques. But you could see that since they didn't understand it, then they were trying to make themselves look smart by criticizing it in some way. But the criticism wasn't really didn't really make sense. So how do I address that? <laughs> you know, like I have to say something 
or else they'll they'll reject the paper right and you see so it's like you get in this battle with like incompetent peer reviewers um that don't really understand even what's going on and then you know and then i saw when i was a peer reviewer that most of the authors didn't you know how to how to write a paper like they didn't know you know how to even design a basic experiment and the th the reason is because you know this expansion in the the publishing industry because of you know m a number of factors but um the internet allowed this to happen that the quality because there's so so many journals trying to get their pages filled every month right that the quality has gone way 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 down i think uh uh, it's great that you guys are here. It's I think it's also, you know, in my terms, being down the rabbit hole, I call it luciferic inversion, and it's deliberate and engineered of everything. And I think it's the creation of scientism, which is like a religion where they, you know, they, the FDA is there to, to stop progress, to, to stifle the truth and to hide it. And um, I mean, if the NIH looked at their own papers on hydroxychloroquine and, and zinc and and everything, they they'd, they'd come out and say, you know, we knew we we've been we have papers on this. So, but it's convenient not to bring it up and to hide it or to bury something that works, and it's just very frustrating. So, um, you well, know, those papers aren't very scientific either. They they may show that people get better, but they don't show what they get better from, because they use uh, basically an invalid test. <laughs> to to give the to characterize what the group is sick with right mm -hmm. so you know e even at every level you pretty much find some something that is uh, invalid and certainly in any virology science you 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 can't really find any of it that is valid you that know we, the whole yeah field. we were we were we did a workshop and some uh, nurse uh, you know angrily confronts us and saying they did a, a study and said that they did a P PCR test. They had the right PCR test. They did it on 700 patients, and it was 100% accurate to show that they had COVID, right? So that sounds pretty impressive, except if you say, well, what was the definition of COVID? Turns out it was a positive PCR test. <laughs> At forty five at forty five uh, cycles. And you th you think to yourself, <laughs> shit, man, uh, this is Well, I mean this, a good you know, I'm big on intravenous vitamin C because I, I looked at uh, Dr. Frederick Klenner and uh, you know and Linus Pauline and Dr. Uh, Thomas E. Levy and I mean that's a classic case of it's just a vitamin and it, it can help. And you know, that sweeps it under the table. Hospital protocols won't even give it to you if you beg for it. Uh, and it's it's just, you know, they probably did one paper where they gave like, you know, five milligrams of vitamin C and said it doesn't work, you know, and it's part of this. That's why I call it scientism. It's like they've created a religion of dogma that can, you know, work to their favor to cover things or work to their favor to stifle things. And, you know, it's just so frustrating. I mean, the the I, I want to I have a couple of questions. because uh, Dr. Kaufman, I watched your video with uh, Benjamin Owen Benjamin on and you mentioned turpentine and I'm I love kind of stuff like that, you know, and I've gotten into this thing where for, you know, the, let's face it, whatever this bioweapon is, it is real and, and people are getting affected, you know, maybe the elderly and the more obese. But if you can't if you don't I, have I don't access, see any uh, I don't see any evidence of that. 
I don't see okay. any evidence of any bioweapon unless well, you're that, talking about the jabs. Well, this is where I'm going. Yeah, like the, the variants and all this stuff. What no, is those really are those are simply made up constructs. And I can okay. I can explain that to you because you can actually find out on the CDC's sure. own website that they're made up. But um, the only bioweapon is the injection. Like there's no if if there's any evidence of some lab made thing, like where is it? Where is the evidence of it? Mm-hmm. Well, also uh, there's on a freaky <laughs> on a freaky um, level in the eighties. Hang on, uh, Steve. This is yeah. really important because okay. if you say that this is a lab created virus, first of all, I think you sh we should consider that that's like the patsy, right? So that's yeah. to throw off the people. If, gotcha. if, if you say that, you have the responsibility to show us a lab-created virus taken, isolated, found from the biological fluids of a, a bunch of sick people who have the same symptoms. Now, if you have that study, I would love to see it because as far <laughs> as I can see, it does not exist. It definitely doesn't. Since that doesn't exist, there is no evidence for any, quote, lab-created engineered virus. And gotcha. to, to, to even suggest that that is without the evidence that that's true is, is just, it's just creating more fear and more confusion and more I panic, agree. like, oh, my God, these guys are killing us with this engineered virus. It's yep. just... It's just not true, and we have to hold ourselves to the same standard as we do with a, quote, natural imaginary virus. Well, that, that's also why they're letting the narrative on mainstream news about Fauci and yes. UNC, because exactly. now it makes it real. It, you know, it, it, it validates an, an invalidated thing. So um, there are we have these, uh, you know. Uh, kind of narratives that are really a trap. And, and one of the main purposes is to keep you believing in viruses as a scary cause of disease. And yeah. another one that I was really spending a lot of time trying to research today is this antibody dependent enhancement story, where mm -hmm. I see one doctor and scientist after the next in interviews and speeches say that there are these studies where experimental animals get one of these vaccines and then they get exposed to the virus, which actually doesn't even exist in reality, but they get exposed to a toxic cellular uh, cell culture fluid. And then they, each one of these people say all the animals died. I hear that over and over and over again. It was today, it was Peter McCullough, but I've heard everybody say this. Now, mm -hmm. there is not one study in the literature that I can find at all where any animals die in this scenario. Now, there are a few studies where they look at this and they do this, but then the animals are perfectly healthy and then they kill them and they do autopsies. And in the autopsies, they find some abnormalities, but when the animals were actually alive, they didn't have symptoms. They weren't in the ICU. They didn't have fever and shortness of breath and, and shaking and stop eating and stop moving. None of that happened. All mm -hmm. these animals were perfectly healthy. You couldn't tell anything was wrong. And then because they're doing an experiment, they just kill them. So, 
you know, this is very, very misleading that all of these doctors and scientists in their speeches, they say all the animals died. Well, they mean they were killed in order to do an autopsy because that really is meaningless, right? But none mm -hmm. of these animals were sick in this scenario. So this antibody dependent enhancement, as far as I can tell, is has no basis in, in empirical science and yet they're all talking about it and it's a very scary thing but what does it do it blames the virus for the problems because you get a you know a vaccine and then exposure to the virus then you die instead of just saying hey the vaccine is full of poison it it might kill you now it might kill you later but mm. there's no virus out there to get exposed to. So this story is just perpetuating the narrative, just like I be you believe the uh, germ warfare th story is. Yeah. I mean, uh, I did a whole, uh, I think we did it together, the, the ferret yeah. study. You know, yeah. first of all, I, I, can, it's, I can actually quote from the, the, the finding of the paper none of the animals had any clinical symptoms at all none of them the only thing they found was antibodies in their liver and mind you they injected this this toxic cell culture intraperitoneal meaning they injected it into their abdomen <laughs> and then it goes to the liver and they find antibodies in their liver and they say oh my god Somebody poisoned their liver. Well, guess who? And and that's the whole study right there. Yeah, and, like or you know organophosphate and and mad cow's disease. I so leading this leads into a question I have in the in the in the man created whatever happened in 1918. Um, apparently they were like injecting mucus into healthy people. And nothing was happening. Where the the inventor of the vaccine, Ed, Edward Jenner, apparently like injected pus into his son's arm and his son died. So how how do you create a smallpox pandemic? Is there a, so you can release something and it will cause a pandemic? Uh, or my point is, why didn't the poison mucus, why didn't the mucus from the 1918 make other, make healthy people infected? There is no study. I've, I've looked at, I have a, a, a file on my computer called the Contagion Fairy Tale, where there's 12 approximately peer-reviewed studies looking at viral infections and whether they're transmissible from one person to another by some biological fluid, and everything from chicken pox to flus and colds. And generally speaking, they'll do 50 people, zero of the 50 got sick. But then what, what happened to Jenner's son or, you know, Edward Jenner's son? No, that's not, you can't that's really make different. a comparison to what Jenner did. It, it's totally yeah, this is what I'm looking for a clarification because I don't understand it. Well, he what Jenner did was he, he took pus from cows that had cowpox and then uh -huh. he made incisions in the skin of children and then put the pus in there. So he wasn't studying contagion. He thought that you could give a milder form of smallpox because cows didn't die of cowpox, whereas people died of smallpox. And he wanted to give a milder form of the disease to humans, and he did it by that protocol. But, you know, think about pus is what an animal is getting rid of. It's got, you know, nasty stuff in it. And if you put that into an open wound, that, that can create disease. 
Okay. But in 1918, it didn't or? Well, no, they didn't. Pus no. is rotting flesh. What they did is they gave secretions. They, in 1918, they're, so Jenner was trying to develop something to prevent smallpox. Okay. In 1918, the um, studies that you're talking about were to study if contagion exists for the Spanish flu. So they're totally different experiments for a different purpose. What they did in those experiments was that they took bodily secretions, not rotting flesh from, uh, you know, in other words, not pus. I guess it was sort of rotting flesh because it was phlegm that was coughed up. It was snot and it was uh, secretions from the eye, right? I believe those were the main mm. secretions they used in those experiments. That's and then everything, they, spit, they, I mean, I yeah. don't you know. Because, you know, what do they say? Why do they have us wearing a mask, right? Because the secretions from our mouth and nose is what they say passes the illness. And they've thought this for a long time because people with the Spanish flu were coughing and sneezing, just like they do have with colds and flus and, and you know, whatever uh, they say COVID is. So because that's where the symptoms were coming from, that's the fluids they took. You know, if it was a diarrhea illness, they might take it from the diarrhea, uh, which would be pretty gross. But it's already gross taking all the stuff you cough up and sneeze out and then putting it into other people. And they put it in by casual means, um, like put it in their mouth and nose. Then they also, they also injected it actually. And, and then they, they tried a third method, but you know, like Tom described, none of the people got sick. So whenever they actually tried to do a study and demonstrate contagion from that you pass a disease through any body fluid from one person to the other, they were unsuccessful because that's not how disease occurs. We're just told that, but we're told it, um, basically we're lied to because there's no evidence behind it. And, and the thing with that, you don't take, proteins in blood from a cow and injected into a human being there's a thing called serum sickness you even even with a person you have to match the blood type mm. um, and serum sickness makes people sick you, you know okay. you don't inject uh toxic proteins from one animal into your you know from your cat into your horse and see what happens. Like that's just <laughs> yeah. That's you, a, that's you know it was the seventeen hundreds. It was I think early you know late seventeen hundreds. So the last question I'll ask is um in a, in a helpful manner because everything's so dark. If someone is poisoned and becomes symptomatic with I don't know whatever you call it, um, it could if you don't have access to um, I don't know if you guys believe in ivermectin or. Or whatever. If you haven't, if you don't have access to any of that, could you nebulize regular hydrogen peroxide or turpentine well, diluted? I think, I think, but the first question you have to really, and I know you're trying to avoid this. What what exactly is it that you want to us to answer about how to treat? Uh, <laughs> like you want someone, to take COVID, if someone, right? If but someone's, the is, um, there, there is no COVID because there's no way to identify someone with COVID that's valid, right? Let's say you so, have flu-like so symptoms and you have no, you and you have no, nothing in the house. <laughs> you mean you have a totally empty house? You should go get a new house. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying in relation to what's going on, if, you know, do, do you recommend nebulizing and, you know, 
So uh, I, if, I've made if a you're, if you're that, coughing, having shortness of breath, or here, here's the thing: I, I have made a big deal my entire career. So not only don't viruses exist, but these categories we th call diseases don't exist. First of all, they never showed up in Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or Native American. Nobody talked about rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. uh, what what the reality is, and I I saw but you can you can be poisoned and you can have stuff in, from being thirty five years. What I saw was this person was fine, and then they got a flu shot, and then a month later they had symptoms that looked like rheumatoid arthritis. The next person doesn't ever eat collagen, and their joints uh, essentially deteriorate, and they were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. The next person seemed to be an emotional grief-type reaction, and then they were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. There is no science behind calling those the same disease in those three people. The one has vaccine poisoning, the other has emotional-based mind issues, and the other is starving. And the reality is, is one of the things that we need to do is stop talking about imaginary disease categories. What happens is people are stories, and something happens, they get usually uh, injuries, starved, or poisoned, and then they get sick. Now, we have innovative ways of starving people, like feeding them, you know, commercial food. That's one way. Chips. <laughs> and we have innovative ways of poisoning people, spraying it in the air and putting it in the food and injecting it into your body. And, you Peanut know, butter. you could yeah. go on and on about the creative ways we've figured out about waves and everything because people understand this who are running the show. So what you have to do, you can't answer, at least I won't answer a question, how do I treat a disease category that doesn't exist? If you show me a person and I find out what happened to them, and then I say, here's what happened to you, you were sucking on glyphosate all day long, and you never moved off your chair, and you never drank water, and, and you might want to consider not doing that. Okay. And then awesome. you might want to use something to get rid of the glyphosate, if that exists. I mean, that may be a problem. Gotcha. Uh, so to, for me, to, to talk about it in the abstract just feeds into the delusion that there is some category called rheumatoid arthritis out there, as if it's a, a real entity. Because once you start investigating it, I mean, it's a crapshoot out there, and there is no there is no definition. You know, depends on the antibodies, but antibodies are, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I like your holding it to a very high standard. I, I get what you're getting at, so I you, appreciate that. You I'm going to pass what it on. Happened to people, and it, if you know, and different people, it could be completely emotional. I heard this story about somebody who's got who had their their life's work stolen a month later, they got a rectal cancer, and then they went through this program of forgiveness. The guy went in to do a biopsy, the cancer fell out of his body, and there was no trace of it. So now that's not the same as the next person. 
And so they're not the same disease. And as long as you're under the illusion, and I would say delusion that they are, you can't help anybody, which unfortunately is the whole point. I get it. Okay. I like it. I like it. I'm going to pass it on because we're running out of time, but thanks for being here. I appreciate it. It's a, yeah, it's a real pleasure, Dr. Kaufman and Dr. Cohen, to have you here. And I want to emphasize something here from Germany because we have here the Federal Ministry for Statistics. And... Today, I got uh, the, uh, the, the numbers uh, for the death rate of the years 2019, 2020, and 2021, which also emphasize that there is no specific virus. Yeah, for example, in May 2019, without COVID, 75,669 deaths. In May 2020, with COVID-19, 75,823 in May 2021, with vaccination, 80,184. Yeah, and uh, and the same are here in, uh, for example, in um, in. Can Ju I just stop you there for one second? Because that does not prove there's no virus. That yeah. proves there's no increased death rate. Yes, that's different. Yes, and it may and, prove there's no pandemic, Tom. Yeah, it may prove there's no pandemic. But it doesn't say anything about whether there's a virus or not. No, there, there isn't. isn't. There isn't. There isn't. A, a, there isn't. But that's not the way to prove there isn't. Uh, but, the, but I have a question because um, it's a more it's a more psychological warfare what we are talking about here. And the interesting thing is uh, the the people who who are pro vaccine and who are not for the vaccine they don't talk to each other. Everyone is talking secretly. And then, for example, the pro-vaccination people say, well, do you know someone who had COVID? Yeah, he was so long, he was, he was so ill for such a long time, he, he can't smell anymore. Yeah, it's very dangerous and all that stuff. And how does this kind of arguments came from? For, why is it possible that the people say that this is COVID and this is such a dangerous thing? Do you have any comment on that? Well, it's basically because um, we are told that everything, every illness is COVID, right? There's, it's been the only thing that's been programmed, um, you know, everywhere we go, every waking moment of the day for, oh, you know, going on almost two years now, that everything is COVID. So, of course, that's the selection bias that people look through. Now, if you, you know, have people describe these illnesses, and if we could, you know, go back and compare them with illness descriptions a few years ago, we'd find that they're the same. You know, 20% of people with viral illnesses lose their sense of smell. That was reported before COVID, right? If there's something different now, it's, uh, um, you know, it's not classified in the science. And then, you know, something else I wanted to really mention that there's something called the nocebo effect. And this is related to the placebo, right? Which is the, uh, basically our mental power over our own body, where that we can sometimes take a pill, even if it has no medicine in it, right? And be, if we believe that it's going to be effective, for example, we can actually get better. Well, it turns out that the opposite is true also, that if we are given a poison or told we're given a poison, even though it's actually um, an inert substance, 
we can actually experience the effects of the poison. So there was a study done with chemotherapy like this, where they told a, a group of people they were going to be getting chemotherapy. And they not only did they experience like nausea and vomiting, but they actually had their hair fall out, right? That's how powerful this, this is called the nocebo effect. So if we tell people that there's this, you know, uh, de dangerous, deadly uh, virus, and it causes these weird things, then they have a cold, they could actually experience those things through the nocebo effect, having nothing to do with any physical thing in reality causing a difference. And this is, you know, part of why you need to have a discussion and get the story from each individual to say, you know, is this person someone who was terrified of this disease and that that's a significant portion of what they're experiencing now is related to this nocebo effect, right? Or is it something else? And there's going to be a different story for, for different people. But this is a, you know, a, a significant phenomenon that we're seeing now, along with the selection bias that just everything I experience, you know, is uh, COVID related. I mean, they're saying all, all these things that I just heard some snippet on the news that COVID patients are dying of kidney failure. And it's like, well, that, you know, kidney failure generally uh, has nothing to do with an upper respiratory infection, right? So it would be either that's from treatment with a certain drug or something else, but they're saying it as if it's COVID, like that everything in the body that can go wrong, right? They had, I saw papers where they had childhood autoimmune, you know, rashes, these weird purpura, and they were saying that it was COVID. It's like everything under the sun that popped up, right? Uh, the same thing, that's what they were doing with the death certificates. So that's why you're getting all these anecdotal stories because people are afraid and they're being told that everything is COVID and they're having nocebo effect and a selection bias. Well, wow. you know, having said, said that too, there's two comments. One is I've heard through the grapevine around here, around here where I live that it's actually okay to shoot deer out of deer hunting season because if you find a dead deer, you just say they died of COVID. <laughs> nobody will uh, uh, arrest you. The other thing is it wouldn't hurt if somebody actually looked into uh, the, the type of toxic influences that we're being exposed to. Like, for instance, the injections. Like, like if, if somebody actually did some studies or new, you know, millimeter wave frequencies, there's all kinds of things that might be making people sick, but yet nobody actually does any real science to find out, you know, do some of these people, what, what, what are we being exposed to? Okay. And, um, one, another question, um, I think you're all, as we all are deep in the rabbit hole, I think we all think that this is more or less um, a psychological warfare. For example, here in Germany, um, in the year uh, 2020, from the 1st July 20, uh, 2023, they want to make restrict, restricted integrity to the physical body. They want to restrict the integrity to your uh, to your flat, and um, this is um, this is quite dangerous. And uh, this is also coming to to Italy. So the this is an indirect forced vaccination. What they are planning in in Europe, 
And um, on the other hand, we have we see within one and a half year of um, of the pandemic, we can see the behavior of the people. They are used to wear masks, so they yeah for them it's okay to wear it. Many of them and. Um, and uh, already several many many people are already vaccinated according to st statistics and they don't know whether they lie or not but let's say it's it's okay so and now we have the now we get the um the the rules if own oh, that only test uh, that only vaccinated people or people who had the flu in the last six months and get healthy again that they will have the approval to have social life so everyone is it's it's only a training like the frog on on the oven yeah it's uh it's only a question of time so that the people get socialized only with vaccinated people and that the unvaccinated people are a threat so the so the psychological warfare is here going in a let's say in a very in my opinion dangerous situation especially concerning the elderman report there is no uh, opposition and the trust in the media is only 30% in the alternative media. So um, my question is, first of all, what is about the vaccination itself? Do you see still a, a real threat in the vaccination? And how do you and what is your thoughts about the restructuring of the society? Well, A, yes, the, the so-called vaccine is a real threat. And I'm all for restructuring society, just not in, in some particular person's way. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're about to do this uh, a webinar again. And uh, this, is a, this, I would say, is a controversial top topic but, or, or, or headline because I, I refer to what I call the gift of COVID. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So you, you hear criticism like, for instance, oh my God, well, let me take a different example than what I'm gonna talk about. Oh my God, the nurses are all gonna quit because they don't wanna get an injection. So what's gonna happen to our hospitals? My response is hallelujah. So the hospitals are gonna close and so people might have to figure out for themselves how not to have be you know fat and weak and and decrepit and and as Ivan Illich said, inhumane level of personal health. Now, if this is what it's taking in order for people to say this sucks, you know this way of life, uh, whether it's the medical system or the school system, you know, they say the teachers are, are some of them are not going to go to work because they, they won't get the injection. And, oh, my God, what's going to happen to the public schools? I mean, the reason they formed public schools was to, to keep you from learning and institutionalize your mind. So I say, hallelujah, close the schools. Now, obviously, there's going to be some chaos, right? It's like, what are people going to do? And, you know, they don't know anything about taking care of themselves. But, you know, we at some point, if we weren't going to do this ourselves, then, you know, they, they whoever they is, kind of came in 
and said, okay, let's use dynamite and blow this to smithereens. And you, everybody listening has a choice. You know, you, you have to say, I am, you are now in a situation where there is no help for you in the hospital. It never was, but now you, now you, got, you really know it. There is no education for you in the school. There never was, but now you—you—they don't even show up now. Um, so, so now you have to figure out, you know, how does a human being live? Like, what do they do? How do how do you raise a child to be independent and free and think for themselves and make something creative out of their life by going to school and getting hundred and eighty thousand dollars in debt to for drinking binges for four years i mean give me a break if that's if that's the way society is <laughs> so yeah i mean it, it is changing and thank god for that i see thank you thank you so much i passed to i passed to mary thank you So going back to the PCR test, is it um, all PCR tests just test for Homo sapien, basically? No, PCR test uh, is something, it's not a test, first of all. It's a, a research tool. It's really a manufacturing technique. What it does is it can amplify any sequence of genetic material from any source, whether it's completely made up in a laboratory or whether it comes from any animal or vegetable. But that's all it does is it amplifies um, a known sequence or perhaps an unknown sequence that's partially known or even a completely unknown sequences can be amplified. Um, but it just amplifies DNA. In other words, makes copies, replicates it like just like a copy machine. You put the starting strand in there and out comes 50 copies or a million or, you know, two times uh, 10 to the 38th. And then if it has enough copies, then it shows positive. No, that's something that you define arbitrarily. You say so many copies. So this, this is one of the, one of the problems with developing it into a test, which is that let's say that we wanted to make a, a test that told you if something was hot or cold, right? Because there's only those two options, like positive, negative, right? It's hot, positive, or negative, it's cold. Okay, so what temperature do we set it at? What temperature tells you when something's hot and it's no longer cold? Do you know? Right, arbitrary. Yeah. yeah, there is none, right? You could come up with different answers. You could try to justify it, but it it's you could change it and still justify it, right? So it's the same thing with using uh, a PCR as a yes or no test result that you have to you have to make a determination where how many degrees is hot, and you have to live with that, whatever it is, and you can change it. And obviously, if you make that cutoff number lower, you'll get more positive results, and you make it higher, you'll have less positives, which tells you that it's not really valid way to, to use it as a test, because if a test should be, you know, able to detect something accurately, not give you an approximation. And right. I, think I would also point out that 
this is not a new phenomena in medicine. No. <laughs> but, like, let me give you an example. 35 years ago, I was on a, a, ch a children's, you know, pedi pediatric forum with some pediatricians in the school district about the explosion of children with ADD, they said. So they said, how do you diagnose somebody with ADD? And one of the pediatricians said, excessive pencil tapping, right? So here's a pencil. So, so I had the presence of mind to say, how many times per minute do you have to tap your pencil before you get diagnosed with ADD? And luckily for me, the guy bit and he said 20. And so I said, so if you tap your pencil 19, you're fine. And if you tap 21 times, then you need Ritalin. And the, the, thing, the thing that's interesting is if you actually say to the child, look, if you tap your pencil 20 times, you're going to get Ritalin, he'll get to 19 and then he'll say, I better not tap my pencil anymore. And so then eventually he'll start counting and become obsessed about how many times he tapped his pencil. And then you've created somebody with, quote, OCD who's, who's obsessed about pencil tapping because he knows damn well that if he taps 20, he's going to get put on Ritalin. <laughs> and if he taps 19, he's fine. And well, that's no. the Tom, you know that if he if he counts his taps, then he's going to be put on Prozac also. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So he's screwed either way. And, and, and they do that all the time. There, there is these there It's not a quantitative yes, no test. It's just not a test. I mean, look at look at if you guys ever get routine lab work. Right, which is a by the way a waste of time and could cause you harm because they have to actually cut into your body to do it. But look at those numbers for you know cholesterol, vitamin D, um, you know thyroid hormone, all those things. They're all. How do we know what's the normal number? Right, we and don't. How do we know in, in in an hour it's not different? And how do we know it doesn't have to do with? Oh my God, somebody's going to stick a needle in my arm. In my understanding with the test, the PCR test was in the process, um, one of the additives was something that contains a natural, like either piece of DNA or RNA that everybody already has in the, in the first place. And I, I wasn't sure if that was just in some of the, the test. And then depending on the cycle count and the, the threshold. It you're talking about the primers? Is that yes. what you're talking about? Yes. So there are primers and probes that are used and not always, they don't have to be, but in any of these, uh, you know, abominations where they say the PCR is a test, they use a primer sequence, which is kind of a tag, like an address label. And it, it can have 18, usually to 24 bases long or letters long. And it, that's supposed to match something in the sample to show that it's there. But all the sequences are always going to be longer than that. So that's just like the end of it that's matching. And then it's going to add on to that and it'll stop at some point. So those pro primers actually kind of find the a piece that you're looking for in the sample. And yes, the primers that have been used in various, you know, so-called uh, COVID uh, PCR tests are not unique to this allegedly uh, virus sequence. They are found in many, many other 
organisms, including in humans and including in uh, microorganisms like bacteria. And yeah. they've been found in hundreds of or different organisms and dozens of different you know, places in the human genome. So they, they are not unique to the virus. That, that's absolutely correct. Okay. But the, you know the, the most important thing about this PCR thing is that it's never gone through a validation study. So in other words, we don't know what you know what it actually measures because the first thing you do when you develop a test for anything is you do a validation study, which is you compare it to the actual thing, right? So if you want to measure the temperature, you have to you know compare it to a, a thermometer that you know really works, right? If you want to say it diagnoses a viral infection, well, then you have to show that people are sick with a virus who have this test, right? But that's never been done. It's only been uh, you know, shown with synthesized samples of the target sequences. It's never been validated with a population of people who were ill with the, a viral illness and compared to a virus isolation test or any other standard gold standard procedure. So, so as a result of that, it's completely invalid. It, it's completely meaningless. And they couldn't even apply for FDA approval if they wanted to, because that the first step is to do a validation study. And that's when you do the validation study, you're able to calculate error rates things like the false positive rate and the sensitivity and specificity. So when you hear various false positive rates quoted, none of those are all are real. Those are all BS made up numbers because there's no validation study that calculated uh, these the real numbers. So they borrow them from other studies, from other tests, um, or get them in other ways that are just estimating it, approximating it. So if, if you have a test that hasn't even been validated, you can't use it for any purpose. It, the results don't mean anything. So you can just toss it aside. You don't even need to learn any other details about why is PCR a bad test for this and why is it not even a test at all and, can't, and what, you know, the reason they choose it is because it could be manipulated so many different ways to get any desired outcome in a population. That's why they like using it, um, but it's not actually a validated test. And it says it right on the label of the package that it's not to be used in diagnosis. And um, going to the, the shots that people are taking, is there um, more people getting sick right now than normal and, and it's due to that. And I want to say, like, I know there's the VAERS site where they, they log the side effects, but then just anecdotally, um, you know, I'm hearing about a lot more people getting sick now than I ever have. And so I'm wondering, is there, I mean, is there, I guess a couple questions, is there actually any kind of a bio warfare weapon that you know of? I guess my, my thought on that, well, that's the vaccine and that maybe that's why we're seeing more people getting sick or is it, do you even well, have any where, evidence? where, where, where is the evidence that there are more people getting sick? Like, do you and have, some, guess, are there yeah, some I numbers? Have, I guess I have more like anecdotal. So I wanted to ask like if either of you doctors knew if, if there is actually, if that's true, if there's any more evidence now of people getting sick than normal or not. 
I don't have any evidence of that. I do. There are clearly a lot of people who are sick from the vaccine and it's being actively suppressed. And, uh, you know, VAERS is not, uh, VAERS is a voluntary system. It's not, so, you know, it's crazy. We have an experimental treatment here, right? Under emergency authorization. You, you would think it's pretty common sense if you have something in an emergency, you'd want to track everyone that's getting that emergency treatment to see what the, is it working? Is it causing harm? Like we rush this thing to the market because it's an emergency. We, we, we now we need to learn everything we can so we know how to use it optimally, right? But there's nothing like that and not just in the US but any country in the world, right? Instead, we have these systems of voluntary reporting now that means you know you have to be a good Samaritan, and I'll tell you that it's actually there are many many efforts to block the reporting of this. So we you can find lots of you know this is where anecdotes are the only thing that we have to go on, but basically where a you know a doctor puts in a report and it's rejected. I've heard that they have only uh, nine that nine out of every ten reports that are submitted are rejected. Um, and that's, you know, they do this arbitrarily because there might be one piece of missing information, like one question left blank or something like that, or maybe just purging it. But, you know, the, it was shown in a previous study through Harvard Pilgrim Health that was funded by Health and Human Services, you know, who, who is above the CDC, um, that only less than 1% of all adverse events are reported on VAERS. So it's actually a vastly underreported system. And already on there, we have over 13,000 deaths reported. Now, I mean, come on, every other situation, if we have a few dozen deaths, there's major warnings come out, black box labels, right? Black box warnings. We had, for antidepressants, they put a black box warning on them just because they had a study that showed um, increased in suicidal behavior, not, not even actual suicides, just suicidal behavior. So it wasn't even, uh, you know, a certain outcome. It was just, um, uh, something that could lead to a bad outcome. And they put a black box warning here. We have over 13,000 deaths reported, and we don't even have any, any warnings at all. We don't have anyone talking about it. I mean, this should have been pulled off the market in January. There was more than enough evidence at that point to see when, when the swine flu vaccine was on the market in the 70s, it was pulled off the market when there were only 53 suspicious deaths. We have now a thousand times more, right? Um, and yet there's not even talk about it. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're promoting it more. They're using more coercion. They even gave full, you know, FDA approval. And I know there's a lot of confusion about that, but for whatever it's worth, it's definitely not going in the direction of taking it off the market, right? So there, we can't rely at all on any of these sources of information, of any of the government agencies, of any of their talking heads, um, or of any of the, the mainstream news channels, if you want to get any accurate information whatsoever about what's going on um, with this entire uh, psychological operation they call the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Thank you. And the last question is um, about whether you call it transmission or shedding. Do you see evidence for that? Do you take any personal um, protective measures against it? And then there's a lot of talk about people taking ivermectin prophylactically for that. And I wondered what you thought of that before I pass it on to Grace. Tom, should, do you want to talk to that or should I give my usual answer? Uh, you can. The only thing I can say is at the end of the day, um, as far as I can see, and you know, we went through this with chickenpox, uh, looking at is there mm -hmm. anything in a chickenpox vesicle or snot that can make another child have chickenpox? The answer is no. Not, and yet, people have had the experience of you know, their child being around somebody with chickenpox and then they get similar symptoms. So there's an interesting situation where we have a disconnect between the science of looking at pieces of you, like snot or vesicles or bubbles or something, none of which have demonstrated contagion, versus the experience of my child was around this child, and then they seemed to get a similar uh, thing. Now, I would first of all point out that it shouldn't be up to me and Andy to sort this out. This should be the public health science community should, should try to understand this, but they don't. They take no interest in it. So I'm left with my speculation, which is, as far as I can see, there is the possibility of transmitting experience from one person to another, like menstrual cycles, uh, you know, correlating or laughter or emotions, and even situations where there's a maturation process like chickenpox. But the only mechanism of transmission or the only agent of transmission is the entire human being. Like one human being can somehow communicate to another human being, now it's time to synchronize your menses, laugh, cry, or get chickenpox in certain situations. What, and I would say the situation is when that maturation step is needed, because it's not a disease, it's a process, it's a cleansing process. If that process is needed, another child can help you undergo it. Now, you know, I'm not saying I've proven that because, you know, nobody has really looked into it, but that's my guess. So whether that's what's happening with this and so-called shedding, there's a, there may be a bioresonance or a communication between people and it's possible, but again, that should be something that should have been studied. And they knew about this for decades and they don't study it. Now you can give your usual answer. Well, I'll follow right up with, uh, with that because there's actually the FDA writes a guidance on how you test for shedding if you have a gene therapy product. And these companies bypassed having to do those studies because they redefined what a vaccine is. But normally what they would have to do is test every body fluid for is this gene product, in this case it would be you know the spike protein or spike protein subunit, 
is it actually present in your urine, feces, saliva, sweat, right, et cetera, et cetera. And if it's not even present there, well, then you can't pass it through those fluids to anybody else, right? Uh, but we already talked about, can you pass things through fluids and get people sick? So that's also a big question mark there. And so, you know, I think it's really, really hard to answer this question. And, and you know, Tom has an excellent point that it's really not our job to have to figure this out because uh, we don't have, you know, a $5 million uh, grant and a laboratory and a, a team to, to do this work. But that, you know, but Pfizer does, um, and the FDA does, and the CDC does, right? And they're the ones that are supposed to follow up on this. But there are people that have done, you know, on a voluntary basis, on their own time, have gotten together and done some survey research. And I was fortunate enough to be able to connect with them and help them review their, their results. And they have a survey of over 3,000 um, participants who people who experienced some kind of symptom and were around people who received these technologies. And I'll tell you that there really wasn't any significant correlation except in people who are intimate partners of people who received the injection. So in other words, what we found is in people who were like coworkers or had casual contacts or were in school or even roommates with people who were jabbed, but they weren't, they didn't have any significant increase in experiencing any bodily problems. But people who are intimate partners, right, that they exchange bodily fluids. And by the way, this should include nursing mothers. And, and we've heard stories about nursing infants uh, getting sick uh, from this, um, is that there could be some kind of shedding issue in those cases. But once again, we don't know the mechanism and um, we don't know that it's through some exchange of body fluid that there could be some other reason. I mean, imagine, I mean, we know how strongly people feel about these jabs, right? They generally, uh, anyone who's against it feels pretty strongly about that opinion, right? And many people feel very strongly on the other side. So you can imagine in an intimate relationship, there would be conflict if one of the partners got the jab and the other one didn't. And that could actually explain the, the phenomenon rather than something actually, you know, physically from the injection that's dangerous. So it's really hard to interpret the differences in these phenomenon without doing more extensive investigation and research that we just don't really have the resources or the wherewithal to conduct on our own. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Andy. Now, I know we could go on and on because this is really important. So I know the two of you would be very busy. <laughs> so well, do you want to say um, any upcoming events, webinars, or anything important so that we can be part of and the audience who could be part of your work? Absolutely. Well, we, uh, we're, we have a couple of collaborative events uh, coming up. Um, actually, uh, what is it, the, uh, the 18th of September, Tom? Yeah. COVID Myths? So yeah. we're doing our third installment of co our COVID Myths series uh, coming up on the 18th. And um, I'm actually going to discuss a lot of the legal aspects of the COVID mandates and how scientific research is regulated and then 
try to get to offering you uh, different approaches to deal with uh, mandates and passports and things that people are facing in their life from a sort of uh, perspective of standing up for your rights, preserving freedom and health autonomy. And uh, Tom, you want to uh, give a description of your part of that? Yeah, I'm going to... Um talk about one of my heroes who, who's Ivan Illich and his concept of radical monopolies and how that is playing out in today's world. And then we uh, are also really excited um, to be offering a, a virtual conference on October 9th and 10th called the True Healing Conference, which um, I'll give you the uh, web addresses for these, but it's truehealingconference.com. And there we're going to be really focusing on the new biology. So we're going to put all of this, you know, virus research temporarily aside. And we're going to talk about, you know, what is the true nature of water and how does it relate to health? Things like biophotons, biofield tuning, orgone energy, live blood analysis and holographic blood. Um, some really, really exciting things. We're going to talk also about like, you know, uh, how to deal with psychological health, detoxification, um, German new medicine. So it's going to be a really um, exciting uh, couple of days. And then many of the uh, people are giving workshops, also teaching uh, some of the techniques and skills. So we're really um, excited about that coming up on October 9th and 10th. Thank you so much. Um, so, and this can only, and everyone could just go to either your website, drandrewkaufmanmd.com or drtomcohen.com, correct? Because I yes, think we, I've seen that healing conference. We so, have yeah. links, yes, uh, on our websites to all these things. Absolutely. Yeah, and if you, if you send it to me later, um, Andy, I could put it also in the post notes, okay? Yes, yeah. I'll do that. And thank you, everyone. And till then, <laughs> keep taking care of your, ourselves because uh, we have got work to do. And to our audience, we may or may do our reflections. But anyway, you do your part. Share this information, okay? Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Guys. you. Take thank care. You. Thank you. Bye bye.